0: Good morning, Grace Bible Church. See, I got a better response than you. (laughs) Huh, huh. That's just like your house. You treat your guests better than you treat the regular people. (laughs) I know that. I know that. All right. good to see some old friends and make new friends. And uh, I'm glad you're here this morning. This is... The Word of God. Hear it and learn. Believe it and live. Obey it and lay up eternal reward. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, my prayer, our prayer this morning is that you would anoint our ears to hear your message for us. That you would anoint our hearts to open them up, to receive and believe what you have promised. And that you would anoint our hands to serve you in the days that you give us on this earth, I pray. In the name of Jesus, our great hope, amen. Joey had goofed around all semester of his eighth grade year, and now that late May had come, he woke up Saturday morning to realize that final exams are coming Monday. And so he did the only thing that he knew to do, and that was cram. He started to cram. He got out his books, he got out any notes that he had borrowed, and he started cramming information into his head. All day Saturday, he crammed. Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, he crammed. He studied math, he studied English, he studied science, he studied geography, he studied everything he knew to study in preparation for the final exams. The problem was, all of this stuff got scrambled in his mind, and so when he walked into class on Monday morning for his first exam, science, not his best subject, he was a little worried, until he read the one question essay, and it was this, delineate and define the three major parts of the human body. He smiled. He knew he had this one nailed. He began to write. The three major parts of the human body are the brainium, the borax, and the abominable cavity. The brainium contains the brain, which controls all bodily functions. The borax contains the heart, the lungs, the liver, and other living things. And the abominable cavity contains the bowels of which there are five, A, E, I, O, and U. That could have been me back in the day. But somewhere along the way, I learned to prepare for the final exams all during the semester. So pay attention, study along the way so you don't panic in the end. And maybe you'll pass a course or two along the way. The fact of the matter is we all take exams on a regular basis. We're tested on a regular basis, that should be no surprise. We have challenges and we have to answer that challenge and we either fail or we succeed. Some of those uh, tests, some of those exams, are smaller things like, should I buy this game now? Or should I wait till the price goes down? Uh, It might be something like, how do I break up with my boyfriend? Those are some of the smaller exams that we have in life. Some of them are bigger, like, do I take my end-of-year bonus and save it so that I can make a down payment on a car next year, or do I go on a Mediterranean cruise this summer? Some of them are even more important tests, like, how do I maintain my marriage in the crisis that we're going through in our family right now that seems to be tearing us apart. Life is full of exams. Once we get out of school, that doesn't mean all the tests will be over. I'm here today to talk about the final exam. It's coming. I don't know when it will come for you but when it comes, it'll probably come in a moment. You may get a little lead in to it, but for some of us, it might come in a moment and we need to be prepared for that great final exam. That final exam has three questions on it. Who do you say that Jesus is? What does that mean, and how have you responded to that? Three questions on the final exam all of us will face, and since I'm a teacher and my rule over decades has been there will be nothing on the final exam that I have failed to cover in class multiple times with lots of repetition. I don't like, I don't like to fool you. I I don't like to trick you on the final exam. I will never ask of you anything that I haven't made clear multiple times. And so that's what I want to do this morning. (laughs) I want to give you a semester's worth of information and then we'll get to those final exam questions. Uh, The way we're going to do that is first of all, look at how some people during Jesus' lifetime, uh, watching what he did, listening to what he said, deduced about who he was. What did they decide? He was who he was. Then we'll look at some Old Testament definitions of a term. We'll look at some New Testament declarations about Jesus. And finally, I will ask, how have you decided to answer those questions? Are you ready? This is a semester. So get ready. First of all, Back in Jesus' day, various groups of people deduced, came to different conclusions about who Jesus was. Some of them deduced and said that he was a liar. If you look with me at Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is on trial. Jesus has been healing people, he's been casting out demons, he's been preaching about the coming of the kingdom. He has claimed to be the Christ, the son of the living God. He has challenged the religious authorities. He's cleansed the temple. And the question is, by what authority are you doing these things? You're messing up our system. And so they brought him to trial. During the trial, they have brought in false witnesses who have lied about what he has done and said. And after the false witnesses have had their say in Matthew chapter 26 at verse 63, verse 63, in response to those false accusations, Jesus kept silent. He didn't even try to answer them. And the high priest said to him, I place you under oath by the living God. Tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. And I tell you that from now on, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in clouds of glory from heaven. And the high priest, knowing that Jesus had answered in the affirmative with his answer, yes, I am the Christ, tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed, he deserves death. When Jesus claimed to be the Christ, his enemies, his foes said, he's a liar worthy of death. A few pages over, in the story of Mark's gospel at chapter three. Again, Jesus has been healing people. He has been teaching. Uh, Great crowds have followed him. He comes back to his hometown area and his family sees how the people are all responding to him. And, And they go, man, we need to do an intervention here. Uh, you read about it in chapter 3 of Mark and verse 20, because these people, his family, deduced and said, He's a lunatic. He's a madman. He needs to be taken aside. It says in verse 20, He came home, crowd gathered again, and to an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people, that would be in context, his family heard about this, they came out to take custody of him. They're doing an intervention. Why? Because they were saying, he has lost his senses. He's beside himself, he's schizophrenic. We know who he is. He's a carpenter, he's a mason. He thinks he's Christ. For goodness sake, we need to take this boy aside. They said, he's a lunatic. Jesus' followers had a different opinion. They had seen what he had done. They had listened to what he had said. And their conclusion was different in chapter 16. Jesus is asking his disciples, and we read about it already this morning, who do you say that I am? And what did Peter say? Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you got it, Peter, you got it. God must have revealed that to you because you got the answer right. So in the scripture we read that some people said he's a liar, some people said he's a lunatic, his followers said he is the Lord, Christ. All of this revolving around the identity of Jesus, is he the Christ? Some said no, some said he's nuts, and the disciples said yes, he is. The Old Testament term for Christ is Messiah. Messiah in the Old Testament becomes Greek, Christ, Christos in the New Testament. Uh, It's not a last name, it's a title, but what does the title mean? The title means, as we read the Old Testament, Messiah means anointed one. Somebody who has been anointed, anointed with oil as a symbol of God giving that individual special power to do a work for God on his behalf for the people. So we go to the Old Testament to look at some definitions of the kind of people who were anointed ones. I'm gonna call them small-m messiahs, small-m anointed ones. I'm going, first of all, to 1 Samuel chapter 19. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, I discover that the Old Testament prophets were anointed to do a special prophetic work. They were anointed to do a prophetic work. What was that prophetic work? The job of the prophet was to reveal God to human beings, to to make God known to people. Uh, Look with me at chapter 19 and at verse 15. Elijah, who has been God's prophet, who has defeated the priests of Baal and Ahab and Jezebel, uh, took a little time off to recover, is now back doing God's work. And God said, I want you to get up and uh, do a little errand for me. At verse 15, the Lord said to Elijah, go, return on the way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, Jump down to verse 16. You shall anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of abel Maloah, as prophet in your place. I want you to anoint with oil Elisha to be prophet in your place. What's the work of the prophet? To reveal God to man, God's person and God's plan. To reveal God's person. Who is God? He's the eternal. He's the creator of all things. He is holy, absolutely perfect in every way. He is loving. He is just. He is righteous. And as we read through the Old Testament, the prophets speak and write, revealing to us what kind of God is our God. That was their work to make the person of God known, to foretell God's character. But they were also supposed to foretell God's plan. One of the things I liked about God's plan in the Old Testament, according to the prophets, was it not only told what was going to happen in the future, but it told what was going on now. (laughs) Guess what's going on in Ukraine now? God knows. Guess what's going on in Haiti now? God knows what's going on in Korea. God knows. And the prophets, revealing God's plan, would make known some of these uh, incidents and information uh, they also revealed God's plan for the future. And as we read the Old Testament, we, we can say, oh, that is a prediction that came true during the first advent of Jesus. Oh, there's one that's yet to be fulfilled. The work of the prophet was to represent it was to reveal God's to man so that we might know him and begin to have a relationship with him that was the prophets there was another group of people who in the old testament were anointed these were the priests leviticus chapter 8 tells us about the priests and their work they were to represent us to god prophets reveal God to us, priests represent us to God. They were, in that sense, go-betweens, mediators on our behalf. In chapter 8 of Leviticus, Moses is, uh, once the tabernacle has been built and all the furniture has been brought in, he's going around and anointing each piece of furniture to serve God's purpose in the tabernacle. And God finally says, oh, and there's something else I want you to anoint. In fact, it's a person. So look at verse 12 of Leviticus chapter eight. It says, then Moses poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him, to make him holy, to set him apart, to do a priestly work. So the priests were anointed to do a special priestly work on God's behalf for our benefit. What was the work of the priest? The work of the priest was to pray, to offer up prayers on behalf of Israel, to pray and intercede on behalf of the people. They were also supposed to offer sacrifices. If you study it at all, you can be thankful you were not a priest in the Old Testament. They did not have a great job. That's why they got early retirement, by the way. They didn't have a great job because their job was to slit the throat of a dove or a lamb or a goat or an ox and then offer that on a sacrifice of burnt offering. They were to offer up prayers. They were to offer up sacrifices that God said would be a pleasing aroma to me. If in faith that individual came to the priest with that lamb and said, offer this up as a sacrifice, I'm believing in God and his goodness and grace, that fragrance from the sacrifice would be a pleasing aroma and God would offer forgiveness to that individual based on their faith. The the significance of that is that that sacrifice anticipated another sacrifice that was going to be made. There was another group of people. These are the kings, and 1 Samuel 16 talks about a king being anointed. In the Old Testament, the kings were anointed to do a special kingly work. And the work of the kings was to rule over God's people. They were to rule the nation, to give order, to give security. To allow for prosperity in the nation. While the prophets revealed God to man and the priests represented man to God, the kings would rule over God's people. And we have an incident of a king being anointed in 1 Samuel chapter 16. The first king of Israel, Saul, did a miserable job And God said, you're out, buddy. I'm going to get a new king. I'm going to get one I like. And and so God told Samuel, go to the house of Jesse and uh, ask to see his sons. And I will tell you which one to anoint to be king of Israel. And so Samuel went down and asked Jesse, I want to see your boys. And he brought out his boys. And God said, no, 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 no. Samuel, there's got to be more. Samuel said, do you have another son? (laughs) Yeah, it's the kid, the youngster, David. He's out with the flock. Samuel said, go get him. In chapter 16, at verse 12, so they sent word and brought David in. Now he was reddish, with beautiful eyes, a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. This one's going to be my king. Anoint him with oil. And so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, just as Elijah anointed Elisha with oil flowing down over his face and shoulders. And just as Moses anointed Aaron to be priest, so now Samuel anoints David in front of his brothers. And the oil falls over his head, down his shoulders. And I want you to see this, because this tells us what the significance of of the anointing was because each one of these people had a special work to do for God. End of verse 13, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. When the prophets were anointed, when the priests were anointed, when the kings were anointed to do their work on God's behalf, They were given spirit, Holy Spirit, power, access to do the work that God had called them to do. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. They were human beings. They were frail. They were faulty. How well did David do as king? He did pretty well for a while, and then he had an absolute collapse He didn't do so well, and the end of his story is not a happy ending. The prophets were inadequate to fully represent God's person and God's plan. The priests were insufficient in the prayers and in the offerings they offered up to provide for ultimate forgiveness, pardon, atonement of sin. And the kings, they were incompetent to do God's work. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 8 says, The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The priests failed utterly. The rulers, the kings also revolted against me, did what they wanted to do made themselves rich, took many wives, murdered people. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that were of no benefit. Sounds contemporary to me. How many pastors, preachers, teachers in our culture today prophesy by Baal rather than by God? How many of those who are spiritual leaders instead don't ask, where is the Lord? What does God have to say? They deny that God exists. They dismiss the book of life. (laughs) How are our political leaders doing? And frankly, I'm not talking about just our political leaders right now, but historically, how have political leaders done in the history of humankind? Miserably, miserably. So Jeremiah's right on target there, and he says all of these small M messiahs are failures. In Daniel chapter nine, Daniel has been in Babylon for 70 years. God has punished his people. He has said, uh, I had special work for my anointed people to do and they have all failed. And because of that, my people have disobeyed and you've gone off into captivity. And and Daniel is saying, but I read Jeremiah and Jeremiah said in 70 years, we'll be released from captivity (sighs) is now the time Lord, that you are going to establish your kingdom on the earth. And God sends a messenger from heaven. And this is his message in chapter 9 at verse 25. You are to know and understand that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, until the anointed one the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, 490 years, and it will be built again with streets and moat, even in times of distress during the Roman Empire. Then after 483 years, the Messiah, the anointed one, will be cut off and have nothing. At the end of the book of Daniel, God says, uh, close up the book until later on. Uh, Nobody's going to understand it until these things come true. But here is a prophecy that the, and if you look at your translation of the scripture here, mine at least has the word Messiah capitalized. It's not a small M, it's a capital M. He says, until the ultimate prophet, priest, king comes, it's going to be 483 years and then he's going to be cut off. It's going to be crucified. That's what the Old Testament had to say about Messiah. Human messiahs fail. We need an ultimate Messiah. So we come to the New Testament What does the New Testament declare about Jesus, who his followers said, you are the ultimate Christ. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews. We're going to stay here in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter one. This book is written to Jewish believers in the first century. They have believed in Jesus. They have stopped offering sacrifices. They have stopped doing some of the ritual demands of the man-made law and tradition. And because of that, they have basically been kicked out of church. Uh, Their families, many of them, have shunned them. They've lost their jobs. Uh, Life was tough for them and they were thinking, hey, If we just pretend like we're Jews, we're going to believe in our brains that Jesus is Messiah, but we're going to pretend like we're Jews and so we won't be persecuted anymore. And Hebrews was written to those people facing persecution to say, no, 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 no. You need to remain faithful to Jesus even if that means suffering. This is a good book to study in our day. In chapter 1, The New Testament declares that Jesus fulfills the ultimate role of the prophet, revealing God to man. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. God, the Father, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. Whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the world. Verse three. He is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his nature. I love that. The radiance of the Father's glory in heaven. He's the exact representation of God's character, of his nature, of his attributes. And that's what the apostles have written about. That's what they have witnessed. They have said, if you want to see God, look at Jesus. He is God. He is perfect in every way. He is the God-man, the perfect, sinless one who has lived in a way that has revealed God in his person and in his plan to anyone who is paying attention. He is the ultimate prophet. Look at chapter 10. In chapter 10, we get a little bit deeper into the meaning of Jesus' role as Messiah. Here he is presented as priest, as the ultimate priest. Remember the work of the priest to represent us to God? How? Through sacrifice? Listen to this, chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Animal sacrifices cannot atone for sin. They can only point to, but he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time. Those who are being sanctified. Those whose sins are atoned for. Those who are saved from judgment. That one sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. And it wasn't an animal. It was himself to represent us before the Father. (laughs) We have a mediator. We have an advocate. We have somebody in heaven sitting at the right hand of God and saying, No condemnation, no condemnation, no condemnation. I paid the penalty for their sin. Not only is he the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, he is the ultimate king. He is the one who will and does rule over God's people. He is Lord Chapter one, again, verse eight. Quoting a lot of the Old Testament and applying it to Jesus. But regarding the son, he says, your throne, God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness. You have hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has, what's the next word? Thank you. Good man. Getting the answers here. That was a quiz. It's not the final. It's just a quiz. He he is the anointed one. Your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. Jesus is king. He is ruler. We sang about that. Don't know if it registered, but we sang about him being King and Lord. What does the New Testament declare about Jesus as Messiah, Christ? He's the ultimate, who does the work of the prophet, the priest, and the king. So that was the semester's work there, everybody. Man, we, I, we've run through the textbook, and it's warm up here, and so the flipping of the pages has been nice along the way. But now we're going to ask this question. What have you decided? What is your response to all of this? If Jesus is the ultimate Christ, who do you say he is? Do you say he's the ultimate Christ? What does that mean? What does it mean to you? (laughs) It means that we have somebody who's shown us God, somebody who has delivered us from the penalty of our sin, and somebody who claims to be king of our lives. So, what difference does that make? How are we going to respond? If Jesus is the ultimate prophet revealing God to us, how do we respond? On the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was glorified and and, uh, Peter, James, and John said, Whoa, kingdom, this is great. Let's uh, set up the kingdom right here. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son. Hear him. Hear him. If Jesus is your ultimate prophet, we need to listen, don't we? Lord, open our ears so that we can listen, so that we can truly hear, so that we can respond to who God is. You do this ABC thing, adult Bible class, okay? It's a great opportunity to tune in, to listen. This is a great opportunity. By the way, bless you for being here today. I don't know what I'm gonna say about the people who didn't come because it was raining so hard. (laughs) But bless you for being here today. Keep it up, keep listening. Ah, not just a a Bible class or a a sermon, but study on your own, listen, listen to what God is saying. Learn about him and his plan. Secondly, if he is the ultimate priest who has made the ultimate sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin, trust him. Trust him. I don't know where you are today in regard to that. I'm going to guess that many, most maybe of you have made that decision to say, I know I'm a sinner. I know I I deserve justice. I don't want that justice. I'm trusting that God is gracious and that Jesus is my high priest. I'm trusting him. He's my hope. He's my only hope. He's my only future. It's going to be on the final." Are you trusting him now, today? If not, I'll tell you what. You don't know when the final exam is going to come for you. You need to be ready. You need to answer right now before you stand before him. And finally, if he's the king, what do you do? You obey You listen, you believe, you obey. Anoint our hands to serve you the way you want to be served in our world today. Jesus said, I give you authority, kingly authority. Make disciples in our world today as much as ever in my lifetime. We have people who are living in darkness and need somebody to step into the light, bring light into that darkness. We can do our Bible study at home in a small group. We can come to church, but God says, you don't hide the light under a basket. You make it known. We walk into the world graciously, humbly, with truth. And as he gives us opportunity We expose this truth of who Jesus really is. There are a lot of people in our culture today that just grind me the wrong way. And I think you know the kind of people I'm talking about. They are sinners worse than me, in my opinion. And I'd like to say, you got to stop that behavior. You're killing our culture. Uh, we, you know what I'm talking about. Our response to those people should not be, you need to stop that. You, 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 you need to change that. Our response to those people who are blind, they are lost, they are dead. Our response is to go and let that light shine. And as Peter said, sanctify the Spirit. Always be ready to give an answer with gentleness and respect. People don't need our anger, they need grace. They may not hear. That's not up to them or up to you. What's our responsibility is to with these hands, these feet, go and serve them with truth in our day. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Listen and learn. He is the ultimate priest. Trust him. He is the ultimate king. Serve him and this world that so desperately needs service. On May the 6th, Beverly and I watched, not live, (laughs) I'm not getting up at four in the morning, but we watched the video of the coronation of King Charles III. We were fascinated by it. The thing that fascinated us both was how many biblical references and allusions took place in that coronation ceremony? And, and after the king had gone behind uh, the, the little barrier to be divested of his kingly garb and in a simple frock, anointed with oil and then come back out in his kingly garb and sit down. His son came before him, knelt down before the king, and said these words, I, William, Prince of Wales, pledge my loyalty to you, and faith and truth I will bear unto you as your liege as your faithful man of life and limb. So help me, God. That was an awesome moment. That should be our pledge. Weekly, daily, we pledge our loyalty to you. It's gonna be on the final exam be ready. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, only by your grace have we heard the truth. Bless us who hear. Bless us who trust. Bless us as we serve. In your name, for our good and your glory. Amen.